Are you a horror hound? Do you like scary movies? Then Moose's Monster Mash is the podcast for you. Moose sits down each month with local and celebrity guests to discuss the things that send chills up your spine. You can find Moose's Monster Mash at electronicmediacollective.com. Check it out before you check out. <laughs> Do you like to binge watch TV? Did you know you could binge listen to podcasts? Head over to electronicmediacollective.com where they have podcasts for days. Do you like podcasts about wrestling? They have that. Do you like podcasts about TV and film? They have that. Do you like podcasts about horror? EMC has that too. Do you like comedy? Do you like books? Guess what? They've got you covered. Head over to electronicmediacollective.com Pick your favorite podcast today. Hey, everybody. This is Leonardo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and you're listening to Bull Spit with Moose. Cowabunga! Hey, Paul, look over there at the size of that moose. Son, that's no moose. That there is a pile of bulls. Okay, we need to make a couple quick adjustments here, here, and here, and you know what? Yeah, I think that's better. Away we go. Welcome, Moose Pack, to another all-new episode of Bullspit with Moose. I'm your host, Moose. Joining me today is somebody who has been in the business for, well, as long as I can remember, and... That doesn't make them old. It makes them seasoned. <laughs> Love that, Moose. From Scooby-Doo and Brave Star to Turtles and many more, allow me to introduce the living legend, Mr. Pat Fraley. Good, but, but I, th- I thought that all legends had to be dead. I'm a little confused because wait, let me check my pulse. Yeah, I'm alive. That's why you're a living legend and not okay. legendary. Oh, I that's it. See, I did. I got that. Legendary is dead, but living legend is alive. Well, I'm semi alive. I'm good. <laughs> so Aren't we, we all semi alive during this very weird era? <laughs> we're trying to be. We're definitely not as alive as we used to be. True. So how's life? How's the family? The family's good. You know, uh, I've got three boys on this planet. One died when he's young, and he's waiting in heaven. And uh, so I've got Harrison, Henry, and Ford alive. Harrison is a fine artist. You talk about, you know, boys of her not being real steady. How about a fine artist? Mm. Hello. But he's doing really well. I'm down in Palm Desert with my wife. Henry's up in L.A. doing a job, and Ford just drove over to Phoenix to see uh, his relatives. So, and we have a new puppy, Moose. And man, does that remind me of kids? You know, mm-hmm. you just deal with it. If you hear yeah yiping, it's not my wife or me. It's it's the dog. It's your extra personas. <laughs> that's, that's right. But I, I I learn from the dog. Speaking of you doing this for a long time. I saw in an interview, you you jokingly said you've been 
acting and teaching since you were four years old? Yeah. Uh, so I think it, I think you said you were you, you played the neighborhood Nazi and you died well. <laughs> I did. <laughs> we, put, we, we played army in those days rather than cowboys and Indians. I was in Seattle and, you know, they loved to shoot me because I died really good. Arch my back, foam, and they loved it. And then I teach them, okay, here's what you do. And so I was acting and teaching when I was four. And somewhere along the line, they started paying me rather than me pay them. And that's how where it went. I never wanted to be a jet pilot or a fireman or anything. I just went and wanted to be a performer. I'll say, because I know you said, you know, you liked the uh, control it gave you of your own, your own, like, little control of your own little world with your characters and everything. And yeah, I do. I did then, and it got exacerbated when my folks got divorced in the 1960 or something like that, really early when nobody got divorced, right? It was like one out of 10. Now it's 50 50 or whatever. Yeah. It sort of, I could not control how people thought and felt, but I could, could control my characters. And so I loved that. It pushed me um, further into performance and not being myself, being other people. Well, and they say, you know, great art is driven, you know, born from pain and strife. And what you did was you took what would normally be a very, very hard time on a person, child, or teen, and you used it to essentially further and create what would become your bread and butter for the rest of your life. Yeah, but at that time, I just wanted to uh, get attention and a date. (laughs) And it did both. So... Were you the class clown at the same time, or were you very, yeah. like... Okay, no. Yeah. You know, I was... Uh, in fact, I remember getting uh, beat up twice by teachers and uh, having a guy in high school say, okay, I'm going to give you a D in algebra, algebra, but if you take any math here or in summer school, I'll go back and change it to a flunk. <laughs> so I was, <laughs> I was highly popular with some teachers and disliked by others i was the class clown it's like i'll I'll give you a d but if you come back you're done (laughs) that's right i'll sneak back and change it to an e (laughs) that's great (laughs) and you know of course i went okay and ended up having to go to a community college and i was embarrassed i so i went one to one that was over the hill from seattle to uh the tri-cities little teeny place uh, and of course they liked me and recommended me to go to a really good school called Whitman college for a couple of years. And I auditioned for Cornell from Whitman and got in full ride in a living wage. So I tap danced, you know, they liked me. I was charming, I guess. So at an early age, uh, God knew and just opened the pathway for me to, Go. I don't even go on the Whitman alumni uh, Zoom because I have so little in common. I'm one of the only guys that became a professional actor. They all became really good audience members. That's what a liberal college does for you. It makes 
people take art and they know the difference between a Van Gogh and a Van Dyke cigar. You know, never heard it put that way. <laughs> and then, yeah, from Cornell, you get your uh, MFA. So, yeah, it, it's it, it's fun to see that you start out as this four year old in the neighborhood just playing the dead guy and showing people how to play dead. And now you have a master's in the craft that you've parlayed into not only a career, but now teaching as well. Well, you know what, Moose? I parlayed the former more than the latter. In other words, all the things I learned at recess and all the things I learned about listening to cows and goats and ducks, that's what I parlayed into a career. And the, the degrees and the training really only opened doors because somebody said, well, he went to Cornell, he's got to be good. No, in fact, going back to Krang, which is probably one of the most well-known performances I've ever done. I did a couple hundred of them on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I was the evil bodiless blob named Krang. Well, there's a couple things. First of all, when you hear Krang, you hear all this fine. This is what I get for surrounding myself with idiots. Let's scrape all that stuff off. It's me talking backwards. And I learned that in fourth grade at recess. And they told me he's an evil, bodiless blob of a brain, but funny. And so, fine, this is where I get for surrounding myself with idiots. After I scrape all that off, I go, fine, this is what I get for surrounding myself with idiots. So what's that? Sounds very Yiddish. It's a Jewish mother. (laughs) And Jewish mothers are always funny. Yeah. And so if you put that underneath, that little chunk of, of truth, because that's what I think, then you've got the four aspects of a, a, a character that work. Evocative, it evokes a response. Unique, nobody else does it. And develop, that's the acting part. You know, you, you, you play actions, you don't just emote. And the fourth is you put in a little chunk of yourself. Now, I don't know what that is. Is it an impression? Is it what, it, in this case, it's what I think of Jewish mothers, isn't it? It's it's always some little thing, like how I hear a goat. Well, when I do a goat guy, it's the way I perceive goats. So that's the little chunk of truth. Hmm. So, and since you brought it up, I was that was one of the things I was curious about. Because for as long as you did Krang, the backwards talk, how do you... How much training goes in so you don't strain your uh, vocal cords when you're doing the uh, backwards speaking? Well, uh, Moose, uh, when you're when you learn it in fourth grade, you just do, just do it, and if it hurts, you stop doing it until it doesn't. Uh, what I always say is uh, volume will kill you. I remember doing a uh, uh, Toy Story ADR looping session. And the first day, first couple lines, Jack Angel, a wonderful voiceover guy, did some and heard his voice because it was loud. Mm. And then he had to leave, drop out. And I thought, well, there it is. If you do anything quiet, like, well, you hurt like that, 
right? That's backwards. And, and then you get louder. When you place it so it doesn't hurt, then you're fine. With any kind of thing, just do it quiet first. So it's all a matter of just finding, basically finding the sweet spot. Yes. The, the, the spot that doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> And isn't that about life in general? The wife, the daughter, it's what doesn't hurt. Find the area that gets you through that just doesn't hurt that much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I do it, but it hurts. You know. Well, then don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't there a joke about when I put my this banana in my ear, ear, it hurts? And the doctor says, "Don't put the banana in your ear." Yeah, say it's that, a vaudeville joke or something. I say the the uh, say I think the joke usually runs. Uh, guy goes into the doc and says, "Doc, uh, you know it hurts when I uh, poke my leg." Well, don't poke. You know, well, well don't do that. You know, next yes. n- next lady comes in, doc. You know, and she's squirming all over the place don't it hurts when i do this and well don't do that you know it just continues on for a while <laughs> it's it's just a nice running gag of well you dummy don't if it hurts when you do it don't do it well then the payoff to that would be the last guy that comes to the door and says so when i put a frog in my ear it hurts and the doctor says do they pay you A different swing and the same thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, Before we dive into your career, let's talk about your teaching some more. Do you do it, like, in, is it in-person teaching? Is it Zoom? Do you you run Zoom classes? Or, like, how is your preferred method? Okay, I got a little bit of a attitude on this, but follow me, Moose. Um. I don't like the term coach because it's like a football thing or it's like a trainer who makes you do another 10 push-ups or whatever. And when you think about it, a good teacher is a good coach. In other words, it's specific and it's about the student. It's not about the teacher. So I'm a teacher, but what I teach is skills and I teach the skills that are needful and the way that are needful for each student. So I teach home study courses. I've got about 30 of them. But sometimes I have retakes, like two or three, until I'm positive the person gets it. And that's the way I teach. Now, I don't, uh, I don't do Zoom that way. I get MP3s, I listen to them, and I respond. Um, I do a lot of Zoom. You know, I'm, as I mentioned to you before we were on the air, I've, I've got textbooks to colleges and they want me to go on whether they pay me or not. I do it, you know, and uh, that's kind of cool, you know, getting a guest, even if it's zoom and try to work with them. But I always work with people personally. That's the way I was taught. In fact, I got to tell you this, this one guy that taught me acting at Cornell, Peter Stelzer, he was only 27 and we were like 21, 22, 23. And I had told him that during this summer, I was in Wenatchee. I couldn't be in the theater because I was thinning apples. I was in an orchard and thinning apples. And I said, when you thin apples, you don't, you, it's not dangerous. You can think about anything. You just like daydream all day. <laughs> and then I was doing a play with him, Rosencrantz and Gildenstern are dead. And um, 
I got to a point where I couldn't play an action. I didn't know what to do. I was just looking out over the audience, uh, thinking or saying something that didn't make any sense. It wasn't, it wasn't made to make anybody feel anything. And I said, what do I do? I don't, I can't play an action. I don't have a motivation. And he took his knuckles on my head and wrapped it gently. And he said, it's thinning apples. Now, how good a coach can you get? He knows you. Yeah. And he knew how to communicate me with me with few words. And that's my aesthetic. And I've always had a passion for teaching, but and finally, I am not a, in the teaching business. I'm in the learning business. Now, he was cruel. Oh, he was tough. I'm never tough. I speak the truth in love as, as I'm commanded to do. And um, I never shine anybody on. If they get a bad ass or something, I'll pull them aside and go, hey, I know a guy that can help you with this. I won't announce it uh, because I want all students to be happy, you know, and, and be relaxed because our greatest enemy is fear. Mm -hmm. That's why I love getting MP3s because they go, oh, I did it 10 times. Well, that's good because the 10th is what you sent rather than sit there and fail and fail and fail in front of me. We'll see. And to let the listeners in on a little uh, behind the scenes, the uh, you really are a consummate. Uh, I think you're always in that teaching mode because – yeah, I reached out to you a year ago when I just recently started this podcast. And, you know, you had responded back, you're, you know, very politely, I might add. And it was, well, you know, I'm not interested at this time. You need to do some work on your sound quality and then we can revisit it. And now, honestly, you could have just told, you could have just blown me off or told me right, to go right. screw myself. You know, right. but instead it was, you know, hey, fix this, do some self-improvements, and then let's revisit this. And right. that's what the last year has been. It's been a constant, okay, let's uh, send some tweaks here. Let's do a few tweaks here. And, you know, like I mentioned to you, it was that, you know, kick in the pants that I needed because you can hear you can hear it from your friends and colleagues so much and yeah, you, you listen to it, but then when you hear it from somebody outside of your circle and somebody in like your position who does this on a regular basis, it really makes you take a step back and think, Oh, okay. What am I doing wrong? You, you, you break everything down and you get a better quality for it. You get a better product out of it. And listeners get a better experience out of it as well so right, and you don't get pride involved i didn't like uh like you said i was polite well you know again i speak the truth in love so uh, i'm never rude to people ever because there's no point no and and, uh, and i can't do anything about your perception of who i am and whether i know what i'm talking about but i can i can be truthful and that's what I love about teaching is, um, you know, being truthful and finding a way on the fourth or fifth time when they do it wrong to get it right. And they're, they're apologizing. And I keep thinking to myself, you know what, uh, be as patient with yourself as I am with students. Hey, I'm getting paid too. 
Yeah. And we're out there flapping in the breeze. So why would I not be patient when I'm called to be patient? If I'm impatient, I go, here's my response, Pat. What's the problem? Oh, somebody must have prayed for patience. It's like, uh, I referred to you w- with my friends as you, you were my white whale. Because <laughs> uh, a- after that email, it, w- it was a driving force to not only better myself, but it's like, I'm going to get him on. I am going to land that interview. Yeah, you know, I'm going to show that I can do this. Paul, I didn't think about it. I didn't I didn't connect Paul Harder with me saying your sound needs to be a bit better. Oh, I didn't figure you did, but and you know, it was just I had it in the back of my head. I was like, you know, he, he told me once that I needed to improve. And I'm not doing that again. You know, <laughs> I'm I'm going to go through. I'm going to make sure everything's on point. I'm going to check and make see where I'm at because and it's not it's not always a matter of uh equipment. It's just how you use the equipment you have and I was using it wrong. So <laughs> right. Well, I noticed um and something that people <clears throat> can't see because this is an audio interview, but you're talking and your microphone is to your right side, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Now, that's the way I work. I don't put it right in front of my mouth. You know, I have a compressor microphone like you, the same shape, which is cylindric. I put it to the side and I go by the microphone. Now, the mic likes the sound. Some mics don't like the sound. They want a full front. But that seems to work well with me. And so there is a a practicing of how close you can get. For example, I don't know where the mic is on this, but if I go, if I get a line like, bye, Barbara, I hate her, right? It's funny, but listen to this. Bye, Barbara, I hate her. Oh, yeah. So you get like the thoughts in a different uh, shaping. And you can only do that with certain mics and you don't want to do it. You can't do it with shotguns they are tough, but a compressor mic cylindric, you can glance by and lean in and go out. Oh yeah. It's all a matter of, you have to find where that window is. Yes. It goes back to find where it doesn't hurt. Sweet spot where it doesn't hurt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But you got to play it back. You can say, Oh, I'm too loud there. Oh, I'm not close enough because you want the waves to be of the same size. You don't want to get quiet and have the you know editor have to do all that raising. Uh, so you so recently, uh, I uh, I directed Scott Brick, who is like arguably the greatest audio book performer in the world in the English language right now. Now Scott did the Great Gatsby, and I was zooming, although <laughs> he lives like you know down the street or in the same neighborhood at breakfast and stuff. So I'm on Zoom and I'm directing him. And I'm noticing, first of all, he's got a little clicker in his hand. So he's doing an old school. He's not doing three, two, one, or or a, what do they call that when they uh, push a button and it goes back to before your error? It's, 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 it's a term for it. But a lot of people have us doing that, or I have performers doing that. But he doesn't like it because he says, when I get into it, I don't want to be messing around with it. I make a mistake. I click a couple, and I keep going. Plus, he's in and out on that microphone like a uh, drinking duck. Mm. He shapes 
what he says and doesn't wear earphones. And I'm thinking, wow, the best in the world. And he's not, he's doing it old school. Yeah. Jeez. You directed Ed Asner on an audiobook, uh, didn't you? Oh, gosh, I've done everything with Ed. He was my next door neighbor. I've been in a play. I've been in a movie. I've directed him. I've been in shows with him. Everything. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in, in, when I directed him, I was doing Spoon River Anthology, and I directed the unabridged, um, it's, a, it's a public domain, but there will be a no other one. Because I used 50 actors, it took a year, and I did 256 monologues with really good actors. And, and Ed's turn was coming. And my mentor was his age, Ron Feinberg. And uh, he did a take, and I got on the talk back, and I went, now, okay, that was good, Ed. Now, and I, I couldn't go further. He said, shut the F up. You sound like the BBC. <laughs> and then he turned and said, Ron? What did you hear? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I once I got to tell you another story, Paul. Once um, I was, uh, I said, um, oh, I got him a deal doing. Uh, I said, what's your favorite book? And he went, you'll never, you've never heard of it. I said, please. And he goes, uh, Last of the Just by Andre Schwartzbarts. Well, I went down to the local uh, Dutton's. Uh, uh, used bookstore found a copy right unbelievable brought it back to him and said um here's the book i'll get you a deal yeah i didn't know but of course ed asner i get all go hold i get hold of the audio literature get him a deal so he's ready to go okay the deal falls through oh. so i'm taking nothing but crap from him. so i said i'll get you a better deal and i got him the 50th anniversary reading of Hiroshima by John Hersey. Oh, come on. So he goes to the studio. He's in, in the neighborhood. They come down. They're recording him. I get in the booth because I want to see him work a bit. And I notice some. So I say, stop the tape. In those days, they were rolling tape. I went into the booth where Ed was. I said, are you chewing gum? And he went, well, yeah, keeps my mouth, you know, from getting dry. I said, give it to me. So he spit it in my hand like a first grade school teacher. And I went out. But can you imagine? He's doing Hiroshima chewing gum. Anyway, I love him. But he, he he's, he's a pain. But I grew up with him next door to me and got to know him. And, you know, he taught me lessons in his own style. Like, you know, I was a trained actor. So I was doing commercial, a commercial read with him. And he went. Hey, talk like people talk. And I went, what do you mean? Well, he jumped into TSLH's Murder in the Cathedral with perfect English, like Lou Grant had swallowed uh, uh, John Gilgood, right? Beautiful, because he got his reputation, by the way, as a young man off his voice. Mm -hmm. And then he stopped and said, see, anybody can do that. But, you know. What but nobody sounds like that. <laughs> talk like people talk. And that I, I guess I teach that quite a bit. Like, get over being a trained actor. As a, yeah, it's, you know, a, a, anybody could put on the theatrical airs, as it were. But I guess. Th there's a uh, benefit to being real. Absolutely. It's harder. Yeah. 
You look at Henry Fonda. I used to look at him as a boy and go, well, that's not acting. Oh, yeah? Try it. Well, and especially, but, like, when you see uh, Ed perform, yeah. you know, like, he he plays the old curmudgeon so well. Right now. In everything he does. <laughs> well, I'll tell you why. When he was 41 years old, he was a in my backyard. And I said, where were you at my age? And he goes, well, I wasn't on my face, but I was on my knees. The worst, uh, best job I had was the year before nothing. And then I got something called an audition for the Mary Tyler Moore show. Now in Mary Tyler Moore, he, he was written to be a curmudgeon. Mm -hmm. So now what happens is he pretends to be one and does really well, even on the phone. What do you want? Oh yeah. People, People love it. He's not that way with me, but he's that way with most everybody because it works. So when I interviewed him not that long ago, it was a very interesting, it's an experience talking with Ed Asner. Yes, it is. He's a very nice, lovable guy, but he gets that gruff, yeah, you know, exterior. And you know, I think my favorite part is, you know, I'm calling him Mr. Asner the whole time because, I mean, it's how I was brought up. Etc. And at the end of it, he goes, "It's Ed, damn it, Ed, call me Ed." I was like, "Okay, okay, <laughs> fine, it's Ed." I, sorry. <laughs> yeah, when students, I say, "Look, you can call me Mister Fraley, you can call me Pat, or you can call me Pops." My boys call me Pops. Just know that if you call me Pops, you can't go back to Mister Fraley if you don't like me. <laughs> There's no changing. No. So let's uh, switch over to your career. You went from stage work where I believe you said you didn't really like you had fun, but you didn't really fit in all the way because you were a very emotive actor and you had to find there were like niche roles that you could be in. You obviously you couldn't do like Othello with your style of acting. But well, like if you were going to do like a performance of Groucho Marx, you would be perfect. Well, I don't know. I do know this, that when I grew up and I'm 72, the only way a white guy, finger popping white guy could get into performing was theater. There was no improv classes. There were no stand up comedians. So I had no choice but to go with theater. Now, when I got into theater, I found that I didn't fit into that kind of world they had. A couple reasons. Uh, One of them was just the world. I didn't like rep company living, all that. But doing theater um, was difficult because you had to uh, remember lines, read a lot. Well, I was dyslexic, so I couldn't read. So I grew up improving. Well, you don't improv when you do a theater. You just do the words yeah. generally, right? I also was afraid. I didn't want to be me. I was afraid of being me. I, I tried to hide. I liked the idea of getting into a character and hiding. And as I progressed and got through, I realized older now, you understand, that cartoon work was all other characters. They really, it's really a skill to be you. Like I'm talking to you right now. I'm just Pat Fraley. I'm no other guy. I'm not even putting on a persona. And that takes confidence and skill. And I didn't have that as a younger man. So 
when it came down to doing cartoons, it was perfect for that era. When I was 30 years old to, oh, 60 years, and then teaching more later because you're, you're you when you teach. Oh, yeah. You don't put on, uh, oh, you goof around, but you're generally like I'm talking to you right now. Quick sidebar. Can you break down something you said in an interview for me really fast? You broke your career down into three sections. And I don't understand what they meant. Okay. Well, um, there's salad days, gravy days, and back in the day days. The salad days are when you're either paying someone to teach you or you're making darn little money. Uh, you're barely on the planet. You know, you're hungry, you're trying, all sorts of stuff. The gravy days is when you get to the point where they're calling for you. They want you. Or they cast you in a two or a nine-year program, right? The back-in-the-day days is when you're older and you don't work as much. And you go, you know, when I was you know, 30, I used to do Scooby-Doo's and, you know, Flintstones. And <laughs> we had a good time. Well, it's a little sad and a little painful, but I suppose that's where I'm at now. Okay. Although yeah. there, there has been this through line through my career of not only performing, but teaching. I say you seem to at least stay busy the whole time. Totally. And love it. Between teaching, acting, and parent, you haven't really had that like downtime that a lot of actors experience. Oh, Moose, we had four boys in five years. I mean, <laughs> it was like unbelievable. So that, that, that's a career in and of itself. <laughs> oh, where's the baby? Where I left it, you know? Over there. <laughs> yeah, like Eon. So round. From theater, you go to Australia. You're doing commercials. Well, I'll tell you what happened to begin with, Moose. Um, I was about ready to get out of Cornell, upstate New York. I knew my chances of doing rep company work were minimal, and I was afraid of going to the city and walking the streets, just afraid of it. Yeah. I wanted to work. So I came up with Australia and uh, sent tapes away, and I got uh, a nibble. And um, at the same time, I was in New York, and somebody back in Walla Walla, where I went to Whitman College, Jack Fryman was his name, Got me in touch with a agent at ICM, or it was William Morris then, and his name was Stark Hasseltine. I swear. I mean, is that out of a like a bad novel? And he was Robert Redford's agent at the time, and uh, he had me read one of his scenes from Barefoot in the Park, and he looked at my resume, and he said, and I swear, well, I see your light on Shakespeare. I mean, who says that anymore? You're light on Shakespeare. And he was true. I'd done a couple, but that's all. So I went to Australia to be a rep actor and hopefully do some Shakespeare, which I did. I did Othello and Coriolanus. And, but as I was doing theater, I realized I'm not very good. And I went to a studio and I was doing some kind of little James Cagney dog for a commercial. My first job. And the producer says, oh, we like you. And I went, Why? And he goes, oh, you're so big. We can't get the other actors to be that big. Well, I was always exaggerated. And so they're always bringing me down all through my career. And I thought to myself, well, there you go, Pat. I mean, because if I couldn't do check off, the pilot light would go out. I was too big. But 
cartoons, I, I thought, gee, they like big stuff. There you go. To, uh, over two, year, two years later, I was at Hanna-Barbera doing my first cartoon show. And that has been a career for me in performance. Hundreds of cartoon shows. Just that light went off and you're like, oh, there's a place for me now. Well, yeah, the light went on. It was like, come on, man. You'll never be that good at doing, oh, French farce. That was great. Check up. Uh-uh. So, yeah. Was there a uh, like shift in nerves from performing in front of large groups to then doing your line readings in like the small one-off sound booths or say just the small settings where you're doing the line readings for uh, the shows? Well, when you're doing line readings like auditions or you're doing line readings in front of a director or with a few people, fellow students, it's scary. It's really hard because they know your tricks or, you know, you know who's behind the booth and but when you're doing it for an audience it's this major thing and you can't see them so it's easier um there wasn't and and by the time i got to doing cartoons and i was 30 years old and i had gone to australia at what 25 by the time i got there i wasn't afraid i was afraid of a lot of things but i was not afraid of performing in front of a mic and here again as i mentioned i was all ex exaggerated I did stuff that other people wouldn't do, but I didn't think about what I looked like when I did it. I just did it. So you come back, you land Scooby-Doo, one of the biggest franchises. Right. And right. one of the longest running franchises in American cartoon history. It had gone 10 years when I got involved from yeah. 69 to 79. And you know how I got that? I went to, to Tahiti on vacation and met the producer of the Scooby-Doo show. And he said, told me, look, if you shut up, I'll audition you when I get back to Los Angeles. So I did, and I came down I, from Seattle, and he hired me on my first show. And later, years later, he said, the reason I hired you was, yeah, you were good, fine, but because I felt so guilty that you came down to L.A. with your new wife. <laughs> <laughs> hey, <laughs> whatever gets your foot in the door. <laughs> exactly. I had no idea. I thought I was really good. No, I was good like a lot of people. But then I got in there, and because I'd saved money, this is something that is important to a lot of people early in their career. I'd saved about 10 grand, which is like 50 or 60 now, right? So when I went down to LA and I had no job and I was just auditioning and had an agent or pretty soon, um, I could go to lunch with these other guys that were older that had careers. They go, hey, Freddie, you want to have lunch? I go, yeah. I didn't have to go and, you know, work as a waiter, which my other actor friends did. So they got used to me being around. And so up eventually when somebody said, I got to have somebody do this duck voice, they go, oh, well, yeah, get Fraley. They thought I was working all the time when I wasn't. And that's, that's sort of how I got in there being one of the guys that were 20 years older than I was. I was one of their pals. So let me see if I got this right. You're, you're this 
legendary career is kind of built on being a hangaround. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, Woody Allen says 90% of success is being there. That's awesome. Yeah, it's very weird. I'll tell you another aspect of it, Moose. I've, I mentioned I was dyslexic. been dyslexic my whole life. Before we roll, we talked about doing audiobooks. I did Huck Finn, right? Mm-hmm. 94 characters, 34 dialects, American classic. I didn't tell my publisher that I produced it myself, and I took two and a half months to do it in a studio oh. with a director and an engineer. I still made money, but when I told her that after I, you know, I was up for an Audi and we were there, she said, don't ever say that again. Don't ever tell me. But I had to take it because I can't read. I can talk. So I get to L.A. and I'm doing commercials now besides the cartoon shows. And I'm hiding my dyslexia this way. When I think I'm going to make a mistake, I say, oh, wait, 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 wait. I've got an idea. Let me do it again. Well, you do get a better idea because you're, you're, you know, you're in trouble. So I take the sentence again and get it right. Or uh, I make mistake and I make fun of myself. I go, the other day I was, oh, no, I got a Henry Fine disease. I got no vowels, just guys. And they'd, I'd make fun of myself and then go back. Or I'd, uh, I'd switch the words around. I didn't know I was doing it. But they thought I was doing it, and it was powerful, and it was making more sense. Hmm. So I got a, uh, I got this reputation of being loose, being confident, and you know, and totally at ease. When in fact it was all fear generated, so they didn't catch me. So 15 years later, I make a mistake and I go, wait, look, I'm dyslexic. What are you going to do? Fire me? <laughs> they're, they're they're laughing. It's too late now. It's like, you got me now. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I don't, it was on Coanga when I said, look, look I'd be honest, okay? Well, and it, it, it's funny because you get, you get brought onto Turtles. You know, Fred Wolf brings you in because I believe you said somebody dropped out. So you got brought in for an audition. And they you didn't fired. think, you didn't think that was going to go anywhere. No. And Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, what a stupid title. And here it is, you arguably, Krang and just the show in general is probably one of your most recognized roles. It is. It's probably uh, the greatest cultural, certainly the greatest cultural uh, event that I ever occurred in. And, and one of the major ones in all cartoons, Scooby-Doo and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Beyond the Warner Brothers stuff, that that's killer. You know, like everybody else in the show, you had tons of you know incidentals because you know everybody did everything on that show. If you right, if you Fred lucked out cute. with just like three voices, you were you were doing pretty good. <laughs> right, Fred was cheap. Oh, he went with a three voice thing, but everybody had to have three voices. We had no guests. Yeah, how did you? Like, how do you internally separate from going into the other voices, like, when you're creating somebody new? Like, if you're coming up with Reporter G, you know, yeah. how do you keep from recycling a voice that you might have used on another just incidental character? 
that you used on the same show? Well, there's a couple things. First of all, the reason why I can jump in and out of characters is because I'm pretty shallow. I don't go psychologically in depth to most characters. That's one aspect. The other aspect is because I, when I was in Australia, I, I taught at the Flinders University. I taught BFA students voice, and they called it vocal dynamics in those days. And uh, I come into class, and they go, oh, what you did today, Mr. Friday? And I would go, oh, well, um, you know, I did a commercial. Well, what was it? Well, I did Walter Brennan. Well, all right. Yeah, you know, oh, he's talking like, why is he ready? And then, right, uh, give us a taste. And I went, well, I just did. I, I did Walter Brennan. No, no, what were you your throat, mate? What were we doing with your throat? From there, uh, the interest of students taught me to break down the character voice into six elements. And so I broke it down. And I took that and taught it and brought it to L.A. because it's part of what I learned. And that kept me from sounding like another character because I could tell the similarities from elements. Pitch, pitch characteristic, tempo, rhythm, mouth work. I could define. So that helped me separate characters. See, it had been one of my longest running questions for voice actors in general because you see uh, guys, especially from that era where you have this laundry list of characters from one show and it's just how how do you keep from you know overlapping the voices because that, that in my head that seems like it would be very difficult to keep them separated to just snap back to the other guys. Well, I'll tell you what, when I first came to work and I was working with Michael Bell and Rip Taylor and Don Messick and uh, Dawes Butler and Mel Blank, all these luminaries, June Foray, and I thought, well, I'm in the wrong room. They are amazing. What am I doing here? I felt like I was like with the New York Yankees and I was, you know, a player on a triple A team. Bad. <laughs> but then after a few months, I saw, oh, I see. It's more management than ability. In other words, that same character, only a little higher in a different dialect. So they were just, they were like Mr. Potato Head, and they were changing a few things that gave the impression they were changing the whole character. So, for example, I'm saying I'm a mall guard. You know, I have this character called Just Neil, and I made my career playing, hey, you kids can't be in there. And then you get hit in the head. What the? Oh! Then you know how to be a mall guard. So say I'm doing this character. The placement's different. The mouth was a little different. He's thinking differently than you are because he grew up and he's self-educated from books in the guard shack. So I've got all this stuff, right? Or say I think and I make him a Russian. And so it's the same guy, except he thinks a little different. He tried to uh, get the English language good. You'll think those were two different characters. When, in fact, they're kind of close. Look, watching you do it, you can see, like, the base is the same. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, to the ear, it's two very different uh, people. And, of course, I wouldn't play them back to back. I would have played the Russian probably like that with this guy because they're separated well. But I was trying to, you know, give you a different uh, taste. Yeah. On Turtles, 
and the voices that you did. Was Krang your favorite to do, or is it just your most popular of the... Uh... Well, you know, it's funny because conventions, Moose, now, the turtles, you know, they, they make a lot of money on conventions. Yeah. And, and Krang does not, you know, because who wants to be a villain? It doesn't matter how good you are. You're still a villain. And But playing Krang was great because I got all the good lines, the funny lines, the interesting stuff. Uh, so there's that. Uh, and I forgot the question, Moose, besides what hit me in the head. <laughs> oh, no, I, I forgot. Well, you know, it wasn't my most, it was the most fun. But I, I had Bern Thompson and I had Baxter Stockman. I actually had Vernon for a while, but I told Fred Wolf, I can't do four. I cannot do it. So he gave it to, uh, thank goodness, to Pete Renaday, who was the only guy that made us all laugh in the sessions. He was so funny. And um, Casey Jones, um, which I don't, I just did a young Clint Eastwood. Hello, Violator. Because that's what we, we'd come into a session, they'd show us a piece of paper and say, you're going to play this character. And we had to come up with it. So there was a simplicity. But going back to probably the most fun was Crane because he was had the best funny lines. And comedy is harder than drama. Oh, yeah. And I'm good at comedy. So I always had that skill. Well, and how did you uh, fit in with the uh, dynamic of the the guys behind the scene? Like, were you part of that extended family that like, cause I know with like Townsend and Robert and all them, they, they, they in real life, they really come across as brothers. Well, uh, you're talking about the, the crowd on the other side of the glass, Susan blue, the director, Walter Kubiak, the producer, some people I hung out with more than others. Now, as far as the cast, well, get this, uh, Barry Gordon, you know, dear friend, right. He's a little older than I am. Not much. Uh, Cam Clark, my cousin, Rob Paulson, I sat next to for nine years. I still call him, and Brad Garrett, my, my best friend and comedian, calls him Young Rob because he was younger than we were uh, generally. Uh, and um, Pete Renaday, close to all of them. But we spent nine years together every week in the same room. That's unheard of, even Bonanza. Yeah. Or even these shows that went on and on, you never saw the cast as much as we did. Oh, so yeah. we hung, and uh, there was no one in that cast that was uh, a problem. Now, some cast, Charlie Adler and I, didn't get along very well. I used to pray and pray and pray with Charlie. Now I, I'm very close to him, but I didn't get along with him. And there were a couple other people in different casts that I, Michael Bell. Uh, I used to fight with, I mean, ooh, didn't like him. Well, uh, prayer was the answer to being affectionate and getting closer to Charlie and Michael for me. But generally, people in casts get along because there's no ego. There's not the ego you have with on-camera actors. I want to shift gears a little bit into a character that the, the way you worked him, you kind of slipped past Disney. And he's actually one of my favorite voices that you do. And that's Wildcat from Tailspin. Oh, you know, 
I got to tell you, um, there's three things in my career. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the most money, right? Made a lot of money. Yeah. Hawk Finn, the best accolades, the best criticism, all that. Tailspin, the most meaningful character I ever played. Now, he was a, a sidekick to Baloo. They had a hard time casting him because he looked stupid. And because I grew up the way I did, and I'll, I'll get into that later, I thought, well, maybe I'll play him naive. And so I was like, Baloo is just a rancher, but in Africa. <laughs> you know. Oh, look, there's a new uh, island on the map. What? Oh, no, that's guacamole. <laughs> Silly, charming, and open. Okay, now get this. I love playing them, too. It was Disney, a Disney show, Tailspin, with Sally Struthers. Now, years later, I'm 20 years later, I get a call from a psychologist in New York. And she says, I have an autistic client, and she'd like to get in touch with you because she loves wildcat i went yeah okay fine it turns out and she's not the only one that autistic kids and kids on the spectrum as it were took buses to public schools because they had uh, resources there right they got humiliated at school by other kids they came home and after school they'd watch tailspin and they saw a challenge character that's how they perceived wildcat being loved by everyone now what uh, what a gift from God for me, because, you know, you know, I'm just playing them, but they have meaning for what you do, you know, and uh, I thought about it. And see, I was around the deaf a lot when I was a kid, because my grandfather taught the deaf and blind all his life. Right? He even went to Gallaudet and he taught at state schools and in Idaho. When I remember my mom grew up at deaf schools. Well, she was exaggerated. And. If you if you notice the sound of this, this is like a deaf person who they they don't have tone and they do things right. Well, if you listen to Wildcat, he sort of has that, and so does Lurky, who was in Dale, uh, Rainbow Bright. <laughs> There's this sense of them. Now, if Disney would have known, I was basing this character on deaf people. I never would have got hired. Oh, they would have shut it know. down quick. Oh, totally. I didn't know, but there is that aspect. And in that, with the added aspect of helping people on the spectrum be a little easier on themselves, delightful. Well, and that was one of the things I always liked about Wildcat was, you know, he never came across as dumb. He, it was always no. goofy and... You know, he didn't very care. childlike and you know it was just this th th there was this innocence to him that yeah. you know even now as an adult going back and watching it you you wish you still had you know yeah. it, it's that it's that childlike innocence that everyone loses as they get older Absolutely. And the writers really tapped into that. They loved it. And they would, and the Jenny McSwain directed me, never had me do pickups because I got it wrong. I changed things around and she didn't care. And in fact, the writers, and I, I credit them to this, there's a, uh, there was an episode about bears, little bears that get caught in lob lobster traps. Yeah. And he calls the bears lobsters. 
for the whole episode. <laughs> I love that, you know, and no one ever put him down and no one ever bothered him about being the way he was. No. You know, and it, it was very evident that he was different. Yes. Yeah, you know, yeah. I didn't think about special, but he was. You know, I mean, he, he, he definitely marched to the beat of his own drum. Totally. And he he fit in with everybody else, which especially, you know, as a kid growing up watching that and being one of the outsiders watching that, it, it, it was fun to, you know, have something to aspire to, you know, and, yeah. you know, it's like, okay, you can be uh, accepted by others and you don't have to be ostracized you don't have to be you know it the norm isn't to be put down the norm is to be you know included it was a represent it represented being um accepted without pain yeah now most people you have to go through pain mm -hmm. i mean they always talk about la and so many left-handers and you know they're creative no it's not so much creative they didn't fit in no matter mark hamill lily tomlin all these people that were left-handed and create no no they just didn't fit in detroit or they didn't fit in where they grew up and so they were accepted in this world of theater and that's what la is like it's like re renegades that didn't fit in. Well, I've noticed the theater seems to be the great equalizer. Well, it's the first way when kids are young, like high school, can get around other people that are unacceptable. Mm -hmm. it, when it, I it's... was a boy, uh, it was uh, quite a while ago, and homosexuality, for example, was not accepted in society. It was hidden. Well, you know, it's always been a place, even in Britain, where people that are not are dissimilar to the the majority go. They always talked about theater being about gypsies. Well, gypsies is a term for people that don't belong anywhere. And that's what is attractive about theater. And it's accessible. Hey, if you can pull a rope, you're in theater. Oh yeah, there's I mean, there's, 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 there's no there's like a place oh. for all. There's a place for everybody in theater, whether it's totally. backstage, on stage, and the sound yes. booth. There's yeah, a home you know, for everyone. Like, yeah, it's not like voice or well, do you have a good voice? Can you pronounce words? What can you do? No, it's not. It's not like a genre or uh, a different genre. See, theater is theater, and it's got room for everybody. Oh yeah. Um. So, do you have any uh, upcoming projects coming out that you can talk about, or you just kind of... Yeah, well, no, not really. <laughs> I mean, I teach <laughs> uh, patfraley.com. If folks will remember that, they got everything, because the contacts are my personal email and my personal phone number. Email is best, it's faster. Then there's a free on the menu, which is about 50 different free lessons, or maybe more, about the voiceover and genres and techniques and skills, totally free. Then there's uh, home study courses, and I have about 30 of them that are specific to genres and skills and stuff like that, and uh, a bookstore. 
So the people can do what they want. But that's what I have going right now. I teach and I uh, get back to students and people sign up for stuff and five uh, lesson home study courses. And that's pretty much what I've got, got, got going. I'll tell you why, one reason. I've always been big in cartoon work, right, Moose? I mean, that's the big deal. Yeah. I went and did a cartoon show about two or three weeks ago. I was the only one there. <laughs> it was creepy. They took people one by one. Well, traditionally, cartoon voice work is always ensemble cast. And everybody's there and talk, working off each other and rapping. And, well, in video games, is traditionally you're alone. Oh, yeah. So I, I get that. It's a real puzzle, but not cartoon work. And so that's not happening. And plus, I'm old. It's creepy working with old people. I mean, you know, no, you're, you're old if you're, you're old if you're 50. If you're 50, then you're playing the old people. See, I prefer working with old people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can definitely speed them to the coffee machine. It's like, I, I fit in better with the older crowd than I do with like people my own age. <laughs> I don't know. I'm so, happy to be here. Uh, do you have any uh, social media accounts or is it just uh, patfraley.com? Uh, Facebook, Patrick Howard Fraley. And uh, in Instagram, I, I follow a few people. Many follow me. And, you know, I'm on Instagram, too. But not very interesting. <laughs> I got Twitter too, but I, I don't. I have somebody that tweets for me, but I, I'm not really active in that. I, I guess Facebook would be the big one. Well, listeners, you'll be able to find those links, like always, in the episode description. You can find me and other great podcasters over at electronicmediacollective.com or on Twitter at Moose Media Inc. Pat, this has been really fun. Yeah, it has been a joy. And I'm going to have to have you on again so we can actually dive deeper into your career because, and Howard just really doesn't, I mean, it scratches the surface, but there's what, like 4,000 voices in your career and we, 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 we got to scratch a little bit of the surface. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you say the word I'm there. Thanks for coming on. And I can't wait till we can uh, do this again. And, you know, listeners, there's a lot of good podcasts out there and unless you heard it here. Probably just a load of bull spit. Until <laughs> next time, take it easy. Ooh-wee, that sure was some bull spit, but I sure had fun. Junior, you just helped. Be sure to tune in next time. 